From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. Welcome to From the Void. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with part two in the final episode in season four. Uh, This is the second part of my interview with author Chris Woodyard. Chris is the author of the Haunted Ohio book series, but she's also written a number of other books about all sorts of other spooky things. Uh, She is currently working on various nonfiction subjects, several mystery series, fictional horror stories, and some historical novels. She's quite busy. Uh, Her most recent nonfiction books include The Victorian Book of the Dead and The Ghost Wore Black, Ghastly Tales from the Past. So check out her uh, social media links that will be in the show notes. Uh, You can also connect to us on social media. And if you click on the Linktree link in our show notes or in the bio of any of our social media links, you will find a brand new web store where we have merchandise available for purchase if you're interested in supporting the podcast that way, or if you just really like the logo, which I personally love. But uh, if you like it too, there's all sorts of uh, uh, options on there for you. So thank you so much for listening to this season of From the Void. Really appreciate your support. We will be back before too long with season five, uh, as always, bringing you all sorts of new subjects and guests, uh, and we'll always keep it interesting. So thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, this is part two of my interview with the legendary author, Chris Woodyard. You've been listening to From the Void. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, one of the terms that pops up that um, that I think uh, we should probably define is Fortean, and where that term comes from and what does it mean? Oh, Fortean, yes. Um, Charles Fort was a collector of weird stories, not just ghosts, but things like fish falling out of the sky or rains of blood or all kinds of mystery animals. Um, He spent his whole life, adult life, making little notes on uh, cards in like the British Library. And then he published these books. I think Low is one of them with an exclamation point. He talks about UFOs. He invented the word teleportation. So he was a very early paranormal reporter. I won't say he was an, an investigator because I don't know that he actually went out and looked at places. But he did write. Um, there was a fish fall in Virginia and they, he wrote to the editor of the paper asking for more details. And they published his letter in the paper. So he's, he's one of the earliest, uh, not the earliest, but he's an early adopter of, um, I'm not sure even what you would call it, because it is so wide-ranging. Um, it is just weird, weird stuff. Yeah, very interesting. Um, there's some there's some humorous tales in in your books, which I thought uh, was rather funny, um, I- including some of men embalmed in booze. <laughs> so, oh. um, and and the second one specifically, the one about the man in the cask of rum, uh, I found to be the most uh, entertaining and uh, uh, rather disgusting. But I'll let you tell the story. <laughs> 
I'm trying to remember. Is that in one of my Victorian Book of the Dead? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Just Edward, a sec. Oh, sure. Edward let me get it. Packenham. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, while you're looking, let me let me uh, let me read this quote from. Um, there was uh, um, some of uh, the the folks that knew him described him as his his body was almost he was quite a drinker. It sounds like. And uh, they say his body was almost ready for spontaneous combustion before his death, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. And then, and yet none ever saw him too much intoxicated to attend to business and to talk sensibly on any and all subjects, which is, which is hilarious. So obviously his friends were like, this guy was constantly drinking and, but he could get his business done. He could get his work done, which is good. So... (laughs) I thought that Sorry. was a humorous. I'm, I'm trying to find him. Oh yes, he's he's packing him preserved in rum. Yes. <laughs> this was from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when somebody died at sea, they would actually pack them in rum and I believe Nelson, Lord Nelson's body was uh put in a cask and brought back and he was taken out of the cask and put in a coffin and properly buried. But apparently um let's see <sighs> can't think of the name of the man but he he sponsored a children's book prize and he died at sea was packed in the rum barrel or the the liquor barrel and they just buried the barrel because he was too <laughs> decomposed it really wow. it, it wasn't right <laughs> yeah. so yeah but this was uh, general edward packenham who commanded the british in the attack in new orleans on the war of 1812 and he his grave has been found. The general's body was said to have been placed in a cask of rum and sent to England. On its arrival there, it was through mistake, not even opened, but shipped again, this time to Charleston. Reaching this city, it was sent to Macmillan, who kept a general stock of groceries and liquors. You can see where this is going with it. There, <laughs> yep. was, there a spigot was placed in the barrel, and the boys who'd returned from the war would congregate around the store, take large potations of the good old Jamaican rum, and tell of their exploits in the war. After the rum was exhausted, the head of the cask was knocked out, and the body of a man was found therein. They identified him as General Packingham, and uh, he was finally put in a coffin and buried near the store where they'd drunk the rum. Ugh. Ugh. So bad. A cask floating down the river, and it had wine in it. So they started tapping it and drinking it, and then they opened up the rest of it, and there's a body. Oh. Surprised no one got sick, you know? Like, yeah. Ugh. I'm sure they did. <laughs> Disgusting. Oh, man. Um, talk about some of the other traditions, too, because I think along with the Victorian era, they, they had some very specific to that peri- time period, some very specific things and that they did in regards to shrouds. And um, I believe they're called crepe, crepes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, crepe was the um, morning fabric. It, it was kind of a crinkly black fabric. Uh, it had... You, you put it through a roller and it had a sort of a speckled pattern on it. It was very scratchy. It smelled like death, apparently. Uh, they used supposedly toxic chemicals to keep the, pre, you know, to process it. Mm-hmm. And doctors railed against it and said, you're inhaling poisonous things when you wear a veil. It didn't stop people because etiquette said, if you're a widow, you have to wear a veil. It's just the proper thing to do to show the proper respect for the dead. And crepe was used to trim 
um, on it was used as trim on dresses and things like that. It also was hung on the door to announce a death. So if you saw a streamer or a scarf of crepe hanging from a doorknob, you knew that was a bereaved household. And people used to do this for fun. They would like hang a piece of crepe on somebody's door and run away. And then people would start getting calls saying, who's dead? Who's dead? And it was, it was a very shocking thing. I can't think of anything in modern life that would scare us as much as seeing this scarf of black crepe fluttering from a door. Uh, but it was, it was quite a, an emotional event for people to see this. Um, there are also wonderful stories about people seeing a crepe on the door, but it's not there. It's a ghostly crepe that's predicting there's going to be a death in the house next. Wow. Yeah. Uh, kind of continue on in, in, in some of the, the tales. Um, what are some more of the unusual tales that you encountered when, when researching this? I saw somewhere, uh, you know, corpses, tales of corpses sitting up, you know, and, and things <laughs> of that nature. Oh my goodness. Well, one of the creepiest ones is that you did not want cats at a wake because they would try to chew on the corpse. Oh. And there's a really ghastly one where it was winter and the corpse was nearly frozen. This was an unheated room and the watchers suddenly see the shroud stir. And they're like, oh my God, what's going on? And they finally had the courage to pull the shroud back and there was a big black cat chewing on the corpse. Mm. There was another one where um, they started the wake And they kept the window ajar just a little bit. And this whole flock of cats started clawing at the window, trying to get in and howling and yowling, just desperate to get in. And they had to like beat some of them to death to keep them away from mutilating the corpse. Wow. (laughs) So also if you, if you had a cat jump over the corpse, that person would become a vampire. That was one of the beliefs. Hmm. Yeah, gotta gotta keep that from happening. <laughs> keep the cat keep the cats out of the funeral home. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, what are what are some of your favorite stories from uh, from from those those uh, that era? I should say. Oh my, <laughs> I'm spoiled for choice here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, one of one of the favorites, and this isn't really a ghost thing, but it's more of a Fortean kind of a story. And I know that Charles Fort reported on some of these, the faces in the windows. You would have someone die, and a few days later, or almost immediately, you would see their face etched on the window. And sometimes there was a story that, oh, they used to sit there during a lightning storm, and the lightning photographed it onto the glass. And the thing about these window pictures was that you'd wash them and wash them, and you couldn't it would only make it brighter. You could only see them from the outside. You could never see them from the inside. And it was always a picture of a dead person. So I, I'm not sure what to think of that. We don't have any surviving examples of this, but they were a huge, I, I hesitate to call it a fad, but they were a huge theme in the 1870s in particular. Uh, they continue on. I mean, I've, I've got other examples. I've collected probably a hundred or more of these kinds of stories, but I'm just fascinated by what, what could have actually made this image appear. They called them lightning daguerreotypes sometimes. 
Yeah, that is interesting because they, you do see certain trends that sort of um, fall out of favor over time. You know, like mm-hmm. during the um, spiritualist, you know, uh, period of time when that was sort of all the rage and, and having seances and, and things of that nature, you see a, a great a great deal of emphasis placed on like ectoplasm and ectoplasm yes. appearing in photographs and not really something you see much anymore, um, but very prevalent during that time period. What's interesting to me is now in the spiritualist golden age, you, you had people tipping tables and levitating tables. People still do that today, um, which, which I find an extremely interesting con- continuance of um, the tradition. You're right, we don't have ectoplasm, possibly because it's been discovered it was phosphorescent cheesecloth or <laughs> egg whites. That was another one. Uh, and people were, the mediums were regurgitating this. Um, they were searched physically, including cavity searches, before they went in to be re- studied by um, parapsychologists. But um, they would have things that they would actually regurgitate. So, uh, unsavory. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, a fascinating time period because you had uh, folks who were great believers on one hand and, you know, like uh, one of the more famous individuals is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, um, who was very interested in the the world of spiritualism. And then on the other side, you had like Harry Houdini, who spent a great deal of the latter part of his career sort of debunking uh, the the individuals who were kind of going around and holding seances and and, um, making these great claims. There are wonderful stories of um, how the mediums did these things, you know, what kind of machines or objects or uh, masks they used to recreate spirits. And it's always sad to me to hear about saying someone saying, well, yes, I saw my mother walking out of the cabinet. And yet it couldn't possibly have been. And someone jumps up and grabs the medium in, in situ and, and they realize that's who it is. But what were they seeing? Were they just so longing to see their, their dead relative that they, they actually saw something? There's a, a, um, there was, the mediums used what was called the blue book. They would sometimes travel from city to city and the blue book would have information on this person lost a son, his name was Richard, he liked to sail, he did this, that, and the other thing, and all these details that you could then use to impress these people because they would say, this medium has never been to our house. They don't know who we are, and they had all this information about our dead son. So there were all kinds, and they would they would make sort of cynical little notes like, good for a lot of donations. Wow. So kind of sad there. And there were warehouses that had inflatable spirits, that you could make run along the floor and then pop up. Um, a rather naughty story had a woman who said that she was manifesting someone's infant who had died. It was her bare breast that they were feeling in the dark. And oh, it geez. felt like a baby's head because she was rather buxom. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Great to, to the lengths of which they will go. Um, yes. Interesting. Well, and, and it kind of, it, I, I would imagine it, it would, it was a rather frustrating time for anyone who, uh, 
would claim that they had actual abilities because you have these these con artists out there who are clearly muddying the waters and making it much more difficult to take this um, you know this type of thing seriously. Yes, uh, I'm trying to remember. I mean, I've read a good deal of spiritualist literature, and people have autobiographies about, you know, how they started feeling the spirits and their spirit guides and how sincere they are about it all. And it's it's difficult to tell whether this is just another con job to display how sincere they are or whether they truly believed that they had these abilities. It, it's really quite difficult to tell. Yeah, even the um, some of the more famous. Uh, the uh, I'm trying to remember their name now. It's escaping me. The sisters, Fox sisters. Yes. Yeah. Even later in life, I think one one you know said no that you know we were really just kind of artists essentially, and then recanted later, and you know. So there's even some confusion there in terms of, you know, you know whether right. or not they were legit or not. Yes, and and was that. Okay, we're going to recant now because we're under pressure. Uh, we'll say we were just snapping our toe joints, and that'll get in the newspaper. And then we'll recant, and then people will come to us again. It's it's is it about publicity? You know, yeah, keeping the story alive. It's it's really hard to tell. Um, another married, supposedly married, a very famous Arctic explorer, Elijah Kane, and. Uh, when he died or disappeared in the Arctic, his family disowned her, would not admit they had been married. So they had a kind of a rough, rough life after after getting all the limelight. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Um, so what, uh, you know, what, what sorts of things are you working on these days? I'm mostly doing the Victorian death kinds of things. <laughs> um, I've, I've just got a new book out called A is for Arsenic, an ABC of Victorian death. Um, I had done the Victorian book of the dead, which had more unusual. Um, I didn't want to just do the standard, oh, here's how Queen Victoria did it. I wanted what the man in the street was thinking about mourning. Um, and, even after I did that, people were asking me relatively what I thought were very basic questions. You know, why crepe? What's half mourning? And I thought, oh, I not everybody lives in the 19th century. I <laughs> guess I better define these things. So, you know, I've defined, I've, I've explained about arsenic and beer and B I E R, where the coffin lies, um, crepe, death tokens, embalming, all kinds of just basic information, and it's all done with. 19th century and 20, early 20th century sources. And we have the most wonderful illustrations by Landis Blair. Um, it, very gory-esque, very gothic. Um, I'm, I'm just in love with the illustrations. So um, I hope people will enjoy this and, and get something new out of it. Anybody who's, who likes historic novels may get some information about uh, terms that they've not known about or hadn't understood yeah, it was very, very educational, uh, things that I, I was not familiar with, you know, and it's, and it's always interesting from a historical perspective to see how our approach to death, um, in the aftermath of a loved one dying, uh, has changed over the years, you know, and, and some of the things that were traditions then that are no longer traditions now and vice versa. So it's very, very interesting to see how our outlook on death has changed, uh, over the centuries. 
I feel kind of bad that we've gotten away from a public symbol of mourning. Not that I want people to walk around draped in crepe veils, um, because that really was kind of unpleasant. And women report, you know, yeah, I got a long crepe veil and everybody was stepping on it in the bus um, and ripping my bonnet off my head. But, you know, I had a friend whose husband died very suddenly and um, she had to go to the hardware store about a week after he died and the hardware guy was like, oh, turn that frown upside down. It can't be that bad. And it's like, yes, yes, it could be that bad. Um, mm. And if we had some kind of a symbol to identify when someone is bereaved, maybe, I, I mean, there's always going to be insensitive people, but you know, maybe people would think before they speak like that. Because uh, when you went out dressed in crepe from head to toe, everybody knew they needed to treat you with consideration. You yeah. you were not to be harassed. We'll take care of you first at the store. We know you don't want to be out here. You know we're so sorry for your loss. But um, you know we have black armbands for special occasions and famous people. But it would be nice to have some kind of a symbol that we could universally recognize when someone's been bereaved because it is such a terribly trying time. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think, you know, also the the uh, period of time that we allow for others yes. to leave uh, is, is just ridiculous. And yes. I think, you know, and, and uh, I, I wonder, you know, in the Victorian era, was there a specific time frame designated to, to the grieving process or was it sort of up to the individual? It was generally... Um, set by the etiquette books or whichever etiquette book you consulted. And it varied over the years. But in general, if you were a widow, it was a year, year and a day, it might be two years. Um, for a, This was what was interesting was for children, if your child died under age six months, sometimes you didn't mourn or you were not supposed to mourn publicly. If they were over that, then, okay, you get six months. Um, so there was a lot of variety. If your aunt died, maybe it would be three months, maybe it would be six months. And each of them had sort of a different stage. You'd wear all black with crepe in the first year if you were a widow. Then you could take the crepe off and just wear black for the next year or six months. And then you'd go into gray or purple or mauve, uh, just sort of easing back into colors because they thought it was too shocking for you to suddenly not be grieving and go back into regular clothing. So yeah, the time varied. And today, of course, I mean, if you can barely get bereavement leave of a week. Um, right. It's, it's really disgraceful. And people feel pressured to, to get over it. Mm. Oh, well, I'm doing this wrong. I'm still sad after six months. No, no, it's indefinite. And you never know when it's going to hit. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, it, it's uh, you know there there are some things that we could probably learn from uh, the previous generations in terms of allowing people that space to decide when they're ready. And um, and you're right. I think having some sort of um, you know uh, item or some way of of um, identifying that you are someone who is going through grief might might help others to be a little more sensitive to the the situation that you're in. And um, you know. Yeah, that's that is that is very interesting. Yeah, I I, I feel the same way about <clears throat> just in terms of 
the way that we approach grief now with, you know, all you have to do, like you said, is look at the amount of bereavement leave that most companies provide. It's like, there's no way that someone, you know, um, you know, a parent or a child that you are mentally ready to go back to a workforce after, you know, week, two weeks, whatever. Exactly. Yes. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yes. But I don't know what we can do about it in terms of the way our businesses are currently set up. Yeah, um, very true. And and to be fair, the Victorian woman was not out in the workplace generally. So she had, I won't say the leisure, but she could stay home and grieve and in private if she needed to. Um, although, you know, you still had your household duties, but you didn't have a job where you had to show up. And men in the Victorian time had much more leeway. They might have to wear a black band. They might wear a headband on their hat, a hat band of crepe or bombazine. <clears throat> but they really were not trammeled the way the women were. Interesting. Yeah, things things to uh, to think about in, in, in uh, current context, for sure. So. Um, where can people go to stay up on top of, um, everything that you're working on and, and get copies of your, of your books that you already have out and all that good stuff? Well, the books are online in the usual, uh, venues. And, um, I have a Victorian, the Victorian book of the dead, uh, Facebook page where people can contact me for signed copies if they like. Um, I'm trying to think what else I'm on Twitter as Haunted Ohio Book. Um, I'm on YouTube as Ghost and Grave. Uh, and I'm on Boggart and Banshee, the Supernatural podcast with my partner, Simon Young. So excited about that. And we do a lot of Fortean and fairy things. Very cool. Well, I will definitely make sure that all those uh, links are in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. I Again, this is a huge pleasure for me, uh, seeing as I really w- grew up on the Haunted Ohio books and have copies like with an eyesight of me uh, right now. <laughs> I love it. There, there's so many people come up to me and say, oh, I heard you speak in my, my elementary school or my middle school. And I'm like, oh, man, have I been doing it this long? <laughs> Hard to yeah, believe. I, I try not to think about how, how much time has passed either. So <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> right. Well, thanks so much again, and uh, this is absolutely fascinating and an absolute pleasure. So thanks for taking some time out of your day to to stay Thank you, and happy hauntings. Thanks for listening to From the Void. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our prior episodes in any of the four seasons that we have out, please consider subscribing so you don't miss a single new episode and leaving us a review. Uh, Also, telling a friend, that always helps. We are a small, independent podcast, so word of mouth is one of the best ways for us to get out there uh, for people who are interested in these types of topics. Uh, We will be back with an all-new season before too long, so stay tuned to our social media. We will be keeping updates on there. Uh, And as always, thank you so much for supporting. Really appreciate it. We'll be back with all new mysteries. And until then, you've been listening to From the Void.